Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on the B side with James Barrow. Why aren't there more creative voices in politics? And what will it take to shake up the status quo? Episode 33 of The B-Side is a federal election edition featuring Jane Caro, an award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, documentary filmmaker, feminist, social commentator, and advertising guru who's running for a seat in the Senate representing the Reason Party. She pulls absolutely no punches as we discuss what the Reason Party stands for, their principles on climate change, women's rights, equality, the erosion of public education, and the need for change towards a rational, honest, transparent government. I've interviewed people from all sides of the political spectrum, and what I do believe is that competition and creative friction creates better outcomes. Healthy competition really is good for everyone. So regardless of our political persuasions, I really enjoyed listening to Jane deliver a timely and powerful pitch for us to vote for change this weekend. I hope to see you down at the local polling booth, and if you mention the B-side, I'll shout you a democracy sausage. Get out there and vote, people. Here's to democracy. Peace. Well, I'm here with Jane Caro. She's an author, columnist, broadcaster, advertising guru, documentary maker and social commentator, and soon-to-be politician. Jane Caro, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and, and it's an absolute pleasure meeting you. My pleasure, James. Thank you for asking. Uh, why don't we get straight into it, and why don't we start with your varied an incredibly successful career. It started, oddly enough, um, particularly considering my passion for teachers, it started, oddly enough, with me realising that I didn't want to be a teacher and that everybody I was at school with who, particularly the girls, who achieved academically, that was the path. I mean, when I was at school, um, in I finished high school in 1974, Basically, girls had four or five career possibilities. If you were smart, you became a teacher. If you were, um, you know, probably smart but not academic, maybe you became a secretary or a PA, you aim for that. Um, if you were uh, creative, good with your hands, hairdressing. And then um, if you didn't fit any of those criteria, factory work or retail or cleaning. Yeah. That was it. That was our choices. I remember there was an ad that uh, stuck with me sort of horrifically um, for a while, which was, I'm a receptionist centre girl. It's the best, most interesting job in the world. I knew I didn't want to be a teacher uh, or a nurse. The other o- occupation, of course, was nursing um, or any of the other things that were seemed to be on offer. And I was ambitious. I thought, I'd like to go into advertising. My father was in advertising, so I had some um, idea of what the um, industry entailed. Mm. And uh, when I was at uni, I did a straight English literature degree at Macquarie Uni. And um, when I said I wanted to get into advertising and not be a teacher, um, people then used to look at me like I'd said I was going to murder babies. We were a lot more left-wing in the (laughs) 70s than we are now. I've stayed more or less where I've always been. In the 70s, I was regarded as right-wing. Now I'm regarded as practically a Marxist. Um, It's hilarious what's happened to the world. So, yes, I I started out getting dog's body jobs in marketing departments and advertising agencies, all of which I was consistently shite at. You know, and look, 
it's it, it, even then now ever who you know not what you know because of who my dad was I got to go and see creative directors they set me work to do because there was no award school oh, when yeah. I was trying to get in yeah. and there were had almost no women in creative there were a few art yeah. directors because they'd done you know the Ramwick Tech course which was very good at that yeah. time so there were a few mm. female art directors almost no female writers because the only way in was through dispatch and in those days union rules said that women couldn't carry heavy parcels. Squirming four-year-olds, no yeah. issue, yeah. but a heavy <laughs> parcel, our wounds might yeah. fall out. So yeah. um, it was difficult but I eventually cracked a job, a junior writer's job at USP Needham as it was then called, I think it's DDB now, mm. and um, what I do remember about that is the number of phone calls I'd get from people, men and women, saying, how the hell did you get a job as a junior copywriter? Yeah. It did take a few years. It wasn't. Yeah, I didn't yeah, just walk yeah. into one. We started by talking about marketing, and I can not understand for a second why the concept of marketing being truly understanding your market, why we ever got or, or were in a situation whereby we didn't have more female voices in creative departments. It's staggering. It's like looking back on it. It just makes absolutely no sense. Wanting to hold on to power doesn't need to make sense. It was about the desire of one group of people who'd always held power, white, straight, often private school educated men, to hold on to that power. And so um, I think it was unconscious. I'm not sure with most people it was deliberate. With some it was, but with most it wasn't. Um, they recognised that to hold on to that power, the best thing they could possibly do was close all the avenues to any competition. And the thing you have to realise is that women and girls have outperformed men and boys in school and university um, for over 100 years in all subjects, including maths and science. And so they were, you know, they were holding out really quite fierce competitors who'd beaten them at school and probably beaten them at university when they were allowed to go in the same numbers, which was when it was free. So it didn't have to make sense. Uh, it just had to maintain the power structure. I mean, it's just absolutely staggering. It's yeah, Someone was talking about the um, need for gender divides in creative pursuits. Now, why is there best female actress. There's absolutely no need for it. And it goes back to what you were saying, the creative pursuits, they are genderless. Well, the talent is genderless. Yes, the talent. But actually the opportunities are heavily gendered. Um, Mm. If you think about the fact that men still on average do not read female books by female writers or with female protagonists, women will read books mm. by men and with male protagonists. Men, by and large, often will not go and see films or watch TV series which have female protagonists. Women will. We groom children very early. Girls, we groom to identify with men. We groom boys not to reject mm. identifying with women, terrified of them becoming feminised. If you think about it, my favourite example of how that works is Finding Nemo where oh, yeah. every yeah. fish in the entire ocean is male except for one and she can't remember her name from one minute to the next. A stunning. wonderful, wonderful, inspirational film for little girls. Um, that's the problem. We People don't give up power without a fight. By holding on to men only watch things about men or read things by men or made by men, you cut the opportunity for creative women in mm. half because they're not going to make as much money for the publisher or the filmmaker as the men are. So this is the problem. As we gender it, what we do is we remove merit from the equation and we actually talk, we're really talking about dominance and power and who has it and who hasn't. 
who hasn't? With a two-and-a-half-year-old girl, we read quite a lot to her. Like, we read an incredible amount of books. She has a library that is the size of most adults. You know, she's just – we read so many books. And it's a staggering realisation how male-centred a lot of these stories are, and they don't have to be. So I purposely changed the gender. Why couldn't we reprint? I know people go, oh, you're reprinting classics of oh, its history. So why? Why can't we give people the opportunity of buying where the wild things are, uh, where the protagonist is uh, a little girl? Do you know what I mean? Or oh, the places you will go by Dr. Zeus. Like, why couldn't we do that? So I think there's a massive market out there for that. And that's an idea. If someone does it, I'd fully support it. I'm sure people like yourself would as well. But anyway, you spent some time in the advertising industry before moving or being quite active in, in media, ultimately with appearances on various shows like The Gruen Transfer that most of our audience will know. How was that move for you and when did you make Well, that? I was in advertising for 35 years, um, on and off. At the end of that sort of 35-year stint, I took a job for the money. It's the only time I've taken a job for the money and it was, a, as always, a terrible mistake. So it was a very uh, miserable time in my career. I hated it and I didn't have enough to do and I wasn't feeling, I felt like my muscles were going to waste. You know how you... Yeah, you know, yeah atrophy sort atrophy. of thing. mental atrophy, isn't it? Yeah. And um, <laughs> by that time I'd started doing a little bit of um, semi-regular appearing on Sunrise on Channel 7. Talking about marketing and um, but also they were starting to move me into some political commentary as well. I'd started because I had nothing to do and I was sitting in an office. I used to write opinion pieces and I'd send them off and, oh, you know, I had a pretty good hit rate. I'd get them in. Adam Boland at Sunrise rang me up and said, look, I want someone to analyse the newspapers every morning. And I thought of you. Would you be interested? You'd have to get up at 4 a.m., um, and do the, you know, read all the papers and come up with what I wanted to say, blah, blah. And I said to him, <laughs> I never forget, I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Five days a week, yes. He said, I said, would you pay me? Because all the appearances I'd done up until then had sort of been ad hoc, so you don't, they don't pay you for those. And he said, yeah, of course I'm going to pay you. They paid bugger all. But it was enough to make me resign the job I hated. And so I started doing that. Only lasted for three months. But nevertheless, um, it was a mm. it was a kickstart out, and then I um, was doing freelance and doing this and that. But slowly, things started to happen via the opinion pieces, my advocacy for public uh, schools, public education, all of that kind of thing. No one else advocated for them; still, very few do. So um, that was always been a big um, area where I built up a kind of reputation. That was the first book I ever wrote and got published. I co wrote with Chris Bonner about uh, what we do to public schools and public education, how we fund education, how unfair it is. That still sells, still regarded as, you know, one of the top de- texts. So I just used my writing skills and and did everything that people rang me up and asked me to do. The more left field, the more I said yes to it. And um, it kind of grew like topsy. I was 50 when I started appearing on the Gruen Transfer, I think. Um, and that really turbocharged where I went. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate because I don't think many women, in particular, well, anyone really, but particularly women, get to kind of restart their career at 50. But that's what happened to me. At 50, yeah. Yeah. So now you're um, campaigning for a seat in the Senate. Uh, for our American listeners, we've got the House of Reps, which is the government, and the, the Senate, which is the 
Upper House, which reviews the ideas of the government and makes sure they're sound uh, and essentially approves them, which is essentially what you were doing in the past, right? (laughs) Reviewing ideas as a creative director and ensuring that they hit the brief. You are standing for the Reason Party, stands to reason. Um, You are standing for the Reason Party. Could you speak more about the Reason Party and what do they stand for and what will you do different if you get that, when you get that seat? Well, the Reason Party is a relatively new party. It's um, quite unknown in New South Wales. It's just starting to make some inroads here, but it's better known in Victoria where they've had a a member of the upper house in the Victorian State Parliament for seven years, the fabulous Fiona Patton, who's incredibly effective and gets a great deal done. In New South Wales, it's an amalgamation of Fiona's original party, the Sex Party, and Voluntary uh, Euthanasia Party. They joined forces to form the Reason Party. And um, the the great thing about Reason is it's a progressive party. It's for urgent action on climate change, all those kinds of things. But the reason it is is because Reason is about evidence-based policymaking. So it is a uh, secular party in that it believes very strongly in the separation of church and state, something that's become incredibly murky in Australia over the last few decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, our Prime Minister is quite open with his um, religious beliefs. Now, I I won't speak on religion per se, but... uh You can have religious belief. There's nothing wrong with Scott Morrison having his religious beliefs, whatever they are. It's when people start to serve God rather than the people, because actually in a democracy, God's not the issue, the people are. So you you have to serve the people, even if you think your God wouldn't approve. If you're in Parliament representing the people, our party would say this is evidence-based policymaking without reference to ideology of any kind, including religious belief or economic yeah. theories like neoliberalism or all the stuff that people impose on or refusal to believe in climate change despite all the evidence to the contrary, including in front of our own eyes. Yeah. So oh. reason is literally what the name says. Even though many of our policies would agree with a party like the Greens, for example, and people often ask me why uh, reason and not the Greens, well, the Greens are a consensus-based party, so they, they get agreement across the board with all their members and everything. Fine, I don't have a problem with that moral model, but I actually prefer evidence-based because sometimes the evidence yeah. contradicts the consensus, but in the end, if the evidence, you know, reality bites, you cannot live in denial and deny reality. In the end, it'll get you. You talked about the ideology that is sweeping through politics globally, especially in the, the the West, I guess, the Anglosphere. Climate change is, no pun intended, a hot topic for a lot of um, parties now and those that are not listening to to the people about their concerns of the climate. You're seeing a lot of movement of independence and people sort of addressing a lot of those issues. People are catching on to the fact that they're not speaking about the root causes. Like no one talks about the pollution, the unsustainable pollution, because you know there's no argument against that. Like no one can say we can keep polluting at the scales we are, but it's great to talk about climate change because you're a step removed from the reality. I think it's absolutely right. We ought to be calling it what it is carbon pollution. You know, the language in a way is now what the language is and that opportunity has been missed. Uh, people get confused if you say carbon pollution now. So um, I think 
The issue with the people who are standing in the way of climate change is a number of things because I've thought about it long and hard. Why? Why the stubbornness in the face of what is, after all, science? You know, it's, it's, and, and it's our home. You know, we can't trash this place and, and come out alive. I presume these conservatives have children and grandchildren and they care about them and they want to look after them. I think part of it is they've gone into denial and denial is a very dangerous psychological defence mechanism as anyone who knows anything about therapy would know, but it's a very common one. So a lot of them are mm. firmly in denial. One of the reasons is it's become so politicised. It's not as politicised in Europe. It's not as politicised in the UK, for example, even under a Tory government, because Margaret Thatcher trained as a scientist. Mm. So when she brought in the sensible rules about climate change in the UK, and it's been a non-issue ever since, if only John Howard had been so wise. But anyway, he wasn't. The issue, I think, one of the things that I think is at the bottom of this is there has been a, a, a fear that climate change, because it requires collective action, it requires all of us to work together to solve this thing, these people see it as the new communism. Uh, they see yes. it as yeah. the new, you know, all communism got defeated, so they've come up with this other thing which is all about anti-individual, all that kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot of that. There's also what do they say now? I mean, what do Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan and the people who, you know, constantly and continuously stand up and say it's all, you know, bollocks and it's not happening, what do they say now? Oh, shit, we were wrong. They can't bring themselves to the loss of face. Yeah, also, yeah. here's another little reason why I think some of them do it. If some of the less well-known, you know, the marginal politicians, I call them fringe politicians now, as long as they keep denying climate change, they're powerful and people pay them attention. The minute they stop, the minute they say, oh, you're right, no one will ever pay any attention to them again. They're of no interest. They're of no value. They're like the kid who takes the toy, not because they want it, but because everybody else wants it. So it's really powerful to hold onto that toy. So there's a lot of that going on. It's unbelievable. Well, that's the Craig Kellys of the world yeah. as well, isn't it? You know, the Craig Kellys are these ultra-conservative contrarians, essentially, that just drum up all this hate and fear to generate attention, basically, for yeah. the lack of any other policy or vision. You know, it's, it's yeah. It's how it's, they make yeah. themselves famous. Are they gonna, they're going to draw their Nero, fiddling while the planet burns. I mean, it. I was speaking to Warren Mundine. He's been on the show. Ideologically, maybe uh, not exactly in the same camp as you, but wonderful man. And I was pressing him on how we should vote. And he said two things. Vote for what works for you and your family, but keep the politicians on their toes. So you would never, and he used this analogy, you would never walk into a car yard and walk straight up to the, the salesman and say, I'm going to buy that car off you for that price on the ticket right now. That's what politicians want you to do. They want to put you in this camp so you're an easy vote. They don't have to work as hard for you. Well, yeah, because since we somehow decided that politics was like a football game and it's all about your team winning, we forgot what it is really about, which is solving the wicked problems that we're facing, about which over the last nine years Australia has been spinning its wheels. And if the, this government wins again, we will continue to spin those wheels and we'll get deeper in the mud. And also the thing that really gets to me and it's a message I really want to get across to people is all the, all the you know, vote compasses and all those things are saying that the most important issue to Australians in this election, understandably, is government integrity, federal ICAC, you know, corruption, all that kind of thing, right? They're really, really concerned about it. 
and I am too, and I'm absolutely for a federal ICAC, you know, um, going to be talking to Anthony Wheely, QC, um, former Supreme Court judge, tomorrow night about exactly this subject. So absolutely agree. But if you are concerned about those things, then you really cannot vote for this government. And the reason you cannot vote for this government, forget about ideology or any of that, is because if you vote for them after all the rorts, after all the scandals, after all the saying they're going to do one thing and then either not doing it at all, gathering money and then none of it going out to the people who need it, giving tenders with no competitive pitch to, I don't know, uh, companies that started a week ago in a tin shed somewhere or giving, you know, um, wonderful jobs to your mates um, and putting, you know, fossil fuel industry captains of industry in charge of the COVID recovery crisis cabinet. I mean, you know, if we can stare all that in the face and then still vote for them, we basically say not just to this government, to every subsequent government, do what you like, we don't care. You can absolutely rip us to pieces. We We don't care enough about it to vote you out. If you care about integrity, you can't vote for them. I don't care who you vote for, don't vote for them. You are also um, campaigning to create awareness and improvements in public education. I know that's uh, something you're very, very passionate about. Uh, Women's rights, obviously, public infrastructure, and we've already spoken about removing religion from politics. Can you talk a little bit about why you're so passionate about public education and what you would do differently if you got that seat in the Senate? Well, public education is indivisible from a robust and well-functioning democracy. The two things go hand in hand, not private education. Private education has existed ever since kings could educate their sons. That's all they educated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's any tin pot dictatorship can create a highly educated elite. There's nothing clever about that, nothing hard about it, yeah. easy peasy. It's the mark of a civil and civilised society that they create a well-educated general population. And, of course, if you believe in democracy, one person, one vote, then you need to educate your voters so that they can make good decisions. And public education is the best lever we have ever found to close the inevitable gaps that are visited upon all of us by the lottery of birth. Now, this is where I absolutely part company with some very Uh, strong religious believers who appear to believe that if you are blessed by God, you're born into a lucky family, and if you're cursed by God, you're born into an unlucky one. Very self-serving, I've always thought, that particular belief. It really doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. I don't agree with it at all. I think we all of us, one of the riskiest things we ever do is to be born because we have absolutely no idea the circumstances into which we're going to arrive and no control of it. There are kids being born um, in the Uyghur detention camps in China right now. There are kids being born, little girls, in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. They've done nothing to deserve their fate or where they're turning up in. There are kids being born in Ukraine, in Mariupol, you know, right now. They haven't done anything. That's just the luck of the bloody birth draw. Yeah, yeah. And the same here. So kids who are born into low SES, chaotic, you know, very difficult backgrounds and who then because they are living in poverty because, you know, during COVID we lifted a million people out of poverty poverty really quickly with uh, JobSeeker and JobKeeper. What did we do as soon as we possibly could under this morally bereft government? We shoved them down in. They're in poverty now. And... 
that's, you know, to me, poverty then causes the stress hormone cortisol. Cortisol affects the development of children's brains. And so it actually impedes them if we don't do anything to help these kids. The schools that teach these kids, and let me tell you, all the disadvantaged kids, bar a tiny handful, attend public schools for perfectly obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. Those are the schools that we starve of funds, that we starve of teachers, and that we starve of resources. In the just this past budget, Scott Morrison took $500 million from public schools and gave private schools an extra $2.6 billion. Yeah. Why? They're already palaces of privilege. They'll have to start painting the bloody things with gold soon. Yeah. They can't possibly yeah. spend that money on more dressage centres. And don't tell me about the low-fee schools. Low-fee to whom? Low-fee to whom? Low-fee in comparison to the ridiculous fees some charge, but not low-fee to most working, you know, even working families. I mean, and it horrifies me we are actually creating a class system and using our education system to do it as a vehicle for doing so yeah yeah which is the opposite of what an education system should be used for it should be used to develop talent regardless of the family into which it was it is born and forget about the social justice the extraordinary waste of money we are giving huge amounts of money to put behind the education of children that are already doing well already advantaged yeah, already in yeah. you know incredibly well resourced schools it buys us Nothing. It doesn't bring the cost of the education down. Nothing. If we put it behind the kids who are, who who desperately need extra resources, remedial help, extra teachers, because teach, the number of kids in a class does make a difference to define children's learning, we would see a return on that money. We would actually see our results go up. So quite apart from anything else, it's a crying shame and waste of public money. Spend yeah. all you like on your private school if you're that way inclined. If you like to waste your money, go right ahead. But public money should be spent with an eye on how does this benefit everyone? And if the rest of the world is more equitably educating its talent, which it is, it's a tax on all of us. We will suffer from it. My mum was a teacher, so I'm quite passionate about this area as well, and she literally had a variation on the statement you said a mark of a civilised society is how well they educate their, their the populace or whatever, the, however you frame it. The general it, population. The population. Particularly the most vulnerable perhaps. You know, yeah. perhaps the, it, that is the mark of, of the, yeah. the, the, the strength and, and civilization to which yeah. you belong. How do about- we educate the most vulnerable? Well, yeah. we neglect them. And it's a, it's a crying shame. So you talked about power and holding on to power earlier in a different context, and maybe that, that is what it is, right? I mean, oh, it's it just doing that. Uh, and I love that. You know, our Prime Minister walks into the Parliament with a lump of coal, right? Um, and you think about the vision that it would take to give world-class quality education for free or or not so much for free because taxpayer-funded public education, world-class to the levels of Singapore and and the the, the um, Norwegian regions. Yeah, like imagine yeah. we set that goal as a vision and we had a whole new generation, millions and millions of entrepreneurs out there to draw upon when we're moving into away from the coal economy, you know, <laughs> digging shit out of the ground, uh, and to innovating, you know, like why wouldn't they? It is just staggering, you know. Basically the way I see it is 
what we're watching at the moment, and it's going to happen whether Scott Morrison and his mob win or lose, what happens here in Australia, it matters. Of course it does, but this is happening, whatever. It's irresistible. Is we're seeing a kind of smashing of hierarchies in every area. If you look at what's happened in the media, the smashing of the control of media by huge conglomerates. Yes, I know yeah. Murdoch's still powerful, but in terms of viewers, I've watched in my, you know, working life, once upon a time, four TV channels, you were going to get 80% of people watching your ad if it was on those four between in peak viewing hours. No, no worries. Now, oh my God, ads in search of audiences because you you can't find where they are. Um, so that's been smashed and, and mm. social media has smashed it all. If you look at what happens with renewables, this is another reason why people resist um, doing anything about climate change, you're going to take the power away from people who own the yeah. coal mines, the um, gas resources, all of those things, which can only be owned by very wealthy companies and the people who um, invest in them, to a, a, an economy where People, the sun, the wind, the ocean, the waves, the tides, which are part of all of our, um, that we hold them in common, that smashes that hierarchy. If you look at what women and people of colour and people with a disability are trying to do, they're trying to smash the hierarchy, not the patriarchy, the hierarchy, Hierarchy. so that we have a more, um, you know, even playing field where merit can actually rise. And what are we doing in education? We're actually trying to build the hierarchy. Yeah, it's like yeah. we're using that to, 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 to try and stop the inevitable happening, which is a kind of smashing of hierarchies, which I find exciting. I think that that's going so to be a really interesting yeah. world. Yeah. But it's taking yeah. us time to get there. And sadly, Australia is, it could be leading it. But it's decided to dig its heels in. Yeah. There's speaking of a great Australian leader, um, I, I am a very big fan of Paul Keating. And and oh, I me follow too. his I follow his Facebook um, group. It's called Paul Keating Insults Appreciation <laughs> Appreciation <laughs> Society. I know he he's the politician that called John Howard a desiccated coconut and <laughs> <laughs> Tony Abbott, um, an intellectual nobody and some perlers <laughs> like that. He has a quote which is um we will not adopt the fantastic hypocrisy of modern conservatism, which preaches the values of families and communities while conducting a direct assault on them through reduced wages and conditions of job security. And that really sort of um, sums up sums exactly up. what you're saying, right? Yeah. It's also completely illogical. I, I, I keep looking at the conservatives and thinking, did you get a logic bypass? Like you don't think these three through, guys. Here they are with their neoliberalism, so it's all about choice, right? Everything's about choice. But then they increase the price of everything, so the choices are only available to a lucky few. And yet they keep driving the aspiration. So, for example, they say to parents, you've got to spend as much money as you can afford on the best private school you can find because the public schools are so shit. Basically, that's what they say. Um, they even say it out of their mouth. Stuart Robert, for example, just recently about Doug Teachers, um, which was nonsense. So, you know, they say that. So these parents absolutely drive themselves and their kids and everything else to get into these, you know, the most expensive they can afford. It might be the low-fee Catholic for some, but it's, you know, often these palaces are privileged for others. For what end? One assumes to get a really high mark in the HSC in New South Wales or wherever you are and then go to university. Hmm. They've been cutting funds to universities yes. for years, for decades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people wonder because the research says 
But kids from comprehensive public schools who get to university outperform both their private school and selective school peers by the end of the first year and continue to do so throughout university. They do better at uni. And nobody really knows why this is. Here's my theory on it, and I'm only half joking. I reckon it must be easier to go from one underfunded public institution to another underfunded public (laughs) institution. Can you imagine what it must be like for some of these kids from these palaces of privilege to go to the average, desperately underfunded university, these huge lecture halls where you can't find anywhere to sit, you know, et cetera, underpaid academics desperately trying to teach far too many kids. What's the point of all this choice if it leads to ba-ba at the end of it? Yeah, it's a really good point. Have they thought this through? Lack of foresight and it's not outcomes-based. I mean, you keep drawing it back to the return on investment, like what are they expecting what is the, the end goal? What's you know, the point? What, what's the, yeah, what's what the parental the choice meant to get us? Because yes. <laughs> it hasn't got us anything except going backwards do in you, uh, educational results. Do you think that's what you'll bring? That, that's, that's, because that's incredibly refreshing. I don't think I've ever heard politicians just frame it so simply as you have. What is the point of this? Like we, you, with your background in advertising and marketing. like Very much so. I mean, we were taught as young creatives, interrogate the brief, interrogate yeah. the brief. What is the point of the brief? What does the consumer want? What 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 is this getting at? Because every extraneous word costs money. Um, yeah. So you yeah. had to absolutely tone your ability to get to the point. And so, yes, I will be asking of every piece of legislation, what's the end game? What are you yeah. trying to do here? What problem are you trying to solve? To solve. Yeah. Is this the best way to solve it? What evidence do you have that this is the best way to solve it? Why do politicians, though, get so caught in the legalese and it's less about solving the problems and more about um, solidifying your place in the political hierarchy, maintaining that power and so on? I think that that's probably right to some extent, and that's a human foible. We all can fall guilty to that at some point. But I think, too, most of our politicians are lawyers. Lawyers are trained never to get to the point. And never be, never to reveal the point that, you know, if you reveal the point, there could be a problem there. There could be a, a legal issue. Or, so, you know, the, the, law, the language of the law is almost deliberately non-specific. Yeah. If you advertising people are the exact opposite, our language has to be as specific as possible. It's possible, yeah. So um, I think one of the reasons we get this very long-winded legalese kind of talk is these people are terrified of being understood because mm. they worry yeah. that if they're understood, they're going to have to actually do something, live up to something, you know, et cetera. They'll do slogans. Morrison yeah. will do stop the boats, you know, that kind yeah, of yeah, cruel, yeah. the crueler the better. It's, we'll it's come back to that. I've got, I've got some questions around what's yeah. for a great campaign slogan. <laughs> yeah, but um, they won't do get to the point because they don't mm. want anyone to really know. Yeah. what they think. They may have lost the ability to know what they think themselves. themselves I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Now, campaigning must be pretty taxing. Um, that's no <laughs> pun on our taxation system. Um, <laughs> but what does a typical day look like for you now, now you're in campaign mode? Lots of interviews and podcasts and, hand, like, handing out flyers and writing begging letters for donations and asking people to volunteer and 
monitoring social media and making quick videos and responding to what's going on in the news and taking phone calls from people and talking to my team and yeah, making yeah, sure yeah. that um, everything's running smoothly, correcting mistakes which inevitably happen, um, you know, uh, yeah. yeah, the usual That's run on run and doing events and, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, running on many, very, very, putting makeup on every day, um, <laughs> running very, very fast on the spot. I think we did quickly mention slogans and political campaigning. How does the process differ, I guess, from a advertising campaign to a political campaign? Because you're still delivering a message. You're trying to get that message heard and understood with clarity and impact. How does it, what's the process and how does it differ, I guess? Well, you get to, uh, I get to approve it. So that's great. <laughs> Instead yeah. of having to, you know, take my take my pearls and cast them before swine, yeah. other people have to take their pearls and cast them before me swine. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I must say having an ex-creative, I guess, as a candidate is helpful because I'm very good at generating content fast. Yes. I was thinking yeah. to myself how hard it would be if you had a candidate who was a lawyer um, mm. for mm. whom the generation of content quickly is sort of, an anathema, that would be an interesting situation. Um, the slogan thing is exactly the same. I mean, I came up with my campaign slogan very early on and it's a no-brainer really. I'm the voice of reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the uh, good thing about that is I get to say whether it's good or not and I wrote it and said, what do you think, Jane? And Jane said, oh, Jane, that's Jane proved it. So we're going with it. Thanks, Jane. <laughs> Good. She didn't say, um, I can't see an idea here. That's what one of my old creative directors used to do. Is there an idea in here? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, the process, and the process feels very purposeful. It feels like sure. you, you were talking about what's the point. Well, you know what mm. the point is. The point is yeah. to get elected. Yeah. Um, and you do everything you know how to do to do that. And in a way, if you're in a very small group, a small party, not with a lot of funds, not with a lot of feet on the ground, I mean, we've we, we've signed up you know, hundreds of volunteers, but that's not a lot for the whole of the state, but I am grateful to every last one of them, let me tell you. And we've raised a really, you know, it's a modest, but I'm absolutely astonished we've raised as much as we have um, from all sorts of people. Again, I'm incredibly grateful. More would be great. So if you're listening to this, <laughs> don't think I've got enough. I haven't. Absolutely. So we can volunteer. You still, you, you, if you, and, and please <laughs> volunteer. I need people to man polling booths, pre-polling booths, letterbox drop, put up core flutes, all the usual kind of paraphernalia that goes with elections. Um, and uh, so it's it's it feels very purposeful. And when you're a small team, you do feel like David fighting the Goliaths Goliath, and there's something yeah, quite yeah. energising and exciting about that. But um, I, as I said to someone recently, if the only fights you ever had were the ones you were sure you were going to win. Yeah. Yeah. Everything would stay exactly the same, the same. as it is yeah. now. Yeah, there needs to be some tension for progress, right? Pain before gain, you so to speak, to all of those metaphors. Yeah. You have to fight even when you are not at all sure you're going to win. The purpose may be more about the fight than mm. the result. Yeah. This is something I've learned over many years. The um, political campaigning of the 70s especially the Saatchi and Saatchi brothers, and I think you mentioned mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher earlier, resulted in, you know, some cracking lines like Labor is not it's working, not work. quite a clever uh, slogan. Labor, it's not working, is brilliant, yeah. Yeah, and, the, and so the, I guess advertising creatives have, I guess, leaned into on occasion the political sphere. 
Do you oh, think advertising much. agencies have sort of walked away from that? Well, it, I'd love to see it. I, one thing I've noticed uh, over the last 40-odd years is how much more timid people have become. Um, society is mortally afraid of giving offence and terrified of criticism. Um, everybody, you know, people say to me, oh, you're so brave, you know. Hmm. I'm like, I'm not brave. I'm not afraid. How, yeah. how you, to be brave, you have to be overcoming a fear. I'm not overcoming a fear. I just say what I think. Yeah. And people are deathly afraid of saying what they think. I'm here to tell you nothing bad happens. Look at me. I've had a, yeah. made a career out of it. Now, that's great for me. Lucky me, I made a career out of saying what I think. But that's terrible. Everybody should say what they think. Isn't that the point of free speech in a democracy? But we've become so afraid that somebody might not like what we say. Somebody might think differently. Somebody might think we're bad, that we have shut ourselves up. No one silenced us. We did it to ourselves. What's caused that to some extent is the way we've deregulated the workforce so that so many people have insecure work, so many people have work that doesn't pay them enough to actually exist and live, even keep a roof over their head or enough food for their kids. We've also created exhaustion because everyone's so afraid of ending up at that end of society or not being able to, to um, keep up that they're working incredibly long hours um, just to hold their job. This works tremendously well for those in power who want to maintain the hierarchy, who want to maintain their own control over society, form of gaslighting. Mm, Keep mm, yeah. ordinary people scared and exhausted yeah. and they won't have the energy to fight back. And I think that's happened across the board. And so people have become incredibly risk-averse. I saw it start to happen in the 80s and 90s when the whole mantra of accountability came in. Suddenly it got really hard to get people to sign off on an ad because they realised they were going to be held accountable for it. And accountable is a blame-oriented measure. It means you will be held to account. And that terrified people so they stopped doing anything. I'm not saying throw accountability accountability out the window and do whatever you like. But why didn't we bring in responsibility instead of accountability? Mm -hmm. Responsibility isn't blame-oriented. It allows you to change tack in response to changing yes. circumstances. Yeah. And it allows you to say, oh, it didn't work, but it, we failed honourably. We, yeah. we, we were responsible in the way that we approached this problem, even though in the end we didn't get what we'd hoped of it. Instead, we went down the everything, you know, we went down this idea that you had to promise an outcome and you had to deliver it or you would be held accountable. That's actually mm. babyish. You can't yeah. promise an outcome. No. You can't control outcomes. You're not in control of the world. You can control inputs, but you can't control outcomes. Outcomes, yeah. I don't know when business lost its mind, but it did. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've spoken at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. What's the most dangerous idea, good or bad, shaping society right now? There are two dangerous ideas and they're in direct opposition. One is that the natural leaders of a society are white, middle-class, straight men. That is a very dangerous idea. The other idea is in di direct opposition to that, and that is that 
everyone has a right to aspire to lead society and has a, a rich experience that we need to know more about. Um, that is a, a fundamentally dangerous idea. And those two things are actually doing this at the moment. And that's why we're in such turmoil because um, women, Scott Morrison, I'm sorry to tell you this, not going back in their box. Women, people of colour, people with a disability, um, LGBTQI people, anyone who feels marginalised and at the edges, they're saying, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. You mentioned the PM and I know you're not um, campaigning against him. What would you do differently if you were the PM? And my second question is, where do you see Australia in about 10, 20 years' time? So, too, a bit of a double-barrel question there, I know. But, um... Very glad that I'm never going to be PM. I think it's a hell of a <laughs> job. Um, what would I do differently? Well, I'd listen a hell of a lot more to ordinary people and I wouldn't spend nearly so much time talking to the fossil fuel industry. Um, I'd want to feel that my legacy was that more people were living uh, lives where they felt safe enough in their house, secure enough in their work and um, safe enough in their community that they could relax a bit and start to um, actually be more creative in their lives, give their kids more attention, uh, take more exercise, all those kinds of things that we neglect horribly in this society. I'd certainly want to be doing everything I could to get to net zero by 2030. I'd be looking at Saul Griffith's plan to um, electrify Australia straight away. I'd be um, incentivising businesses that are desperate to get moving on um, transitioning to renewable energy and new forms of um, technology that rely on renewables rather than fossil fuels. I'd be doing everything I could to stop species extinction. Um, there are so many things that I think mm. we could do so much better. Um, I'd be building social houses, housing hand over fist. I'd be looking at women's lifetime uh, trajectory into poverty and doing everything I could to stop that incredible vulnerability that we give to women as a reward for putting care of other people ahead of their own right to earn an income. Fabulous, guys. Geez, you're good to us, girls. Thanks for that as we live out of our car. Unbelievable. Mm. I, uh, that makes me so angry. I Steam comes out of my head. Um, I'd be doing all those things. But I'm glad I'm not the PM. Um, I think that um, negotiating your way to that is probably extremely complicated. You have to have a party behind you. There's all sorts of vested interests and factions that will interfere with your program. But you've got to aim there. You've got to do the best mm. you can to get there. What was the second part of your question? Um, what where will do you, I do? Where do, you, where, where do you see Australia in 10, 10 years. years? Well, there's two ways Australia can go. We can go with the current thinking, which is let's do nothing. Let's keep spinning our wheels. Let's keep shipping off um, our resources to fossil fuel burning countries um, at, uh, as, uh, and making as much money as we possibly can out of it in the short time, but that will still be a viable thing. Uh, and what will happen is we will 
slide backwards and we will end up being a dumping ground for all the worst and dirtiest technology that no one can sell to anyone else. Mm. We'll probably, if we continue down that route and refuse to to, um, carry our weight when it comes to net zero, uh, we will have sanctions put upon us by Europe. We've already got sanctions from China. I'm not quite sure how our economy survives in that situation. So we're really facing a situation where we cannot, because people, it's natural and normal for people to want to stay the same, to resist change. That's normal. In fact, I believe that people don't change until it gets too uncomfortable to stay the same. I'm hoping it's getting too uncomfortable now because we really need to change. But if we don't change, that's what's going to happen. We are yeah. actually going yeah. to we're going to shrink because you can't stand still in life, not if you're a person, not if you're a country. You can't actually stay the same. You can either shrink or grow but you can't stand still. Mm -hmm. So Australia is looking at a choice. Will we shrink? Morrison, Canavan, Joyce, that's the shrink way. Let's Mm -hmm. turn our faces from the future. It is small government. (laughs) Yeah, let's stay. Well, that's right. We keep electing people, governments that don't believe in government. What do we think Mm -hmm. was going to happen? Um, But that's the shrink way. The grow way is to actually start doing our work when it comes to Uh, climate change, doing our work when it comes to increasing equality and inclusion and safety for people. It's doing our work to make Australia a bigger, more generous-hearted, more outward-looking, more um, wise country. Hmm. That's the growth that we could choose to do. I don't know which way it's going to go, but it's one or the other. There's no staying the same. Hmm. That's brilliant. And it ties off all of those themes and concepts we were talking about earlier, right back to educating next generation of leaders, innovators through public education and Mm. so on, ensuring that people have a quality of opportunity, whether it be socioeconomically, their gender, sexuality or otherwise. It all comes back to greater outcomes and growth and I think you've just really wonderfully tied it all up into something that makes total sense. I can see that vision. I can see that Australia. Mm. I can see 20 years down the track us being in a far better um, position uh, economically and socially you know, mm. than we are yeah. now. So the outcomes are there. Uh, we've just got to give people the responsibility uh, to go out there and, and do their best to try and achieve them. Um, in terms of advice for people that sums up your philosophy, um, and it could be uh, a slogan, a campaign slogan, I call it a bite of wisdom. If you could give Australians a piece of advice, broadly speaking, as well as for this upcoming election, and if you could do it in a way that, yeah, acted as a bit of a campaign slogan, what would that be? Don't stand still. If you want things to get better, you can't wait for someone else to fix it for you. You can't can't think your vote will do it all on its own. Our democracy is under threat. It's fragile at the moment. It's not as strong as it once was. If you care about that, get off your ass. Go and volunteer for the person you think is the candidate you want to support. Get active. Get out there. Write letters. Use what skills you've got to push for change. If you want that vision of a better, more progressive, more open-minded, more generous-spirited, more innovative Australia, 
You can't sit and wait for it to happen. You have to make it happen. You have to be in there, part of the solution. Otherwise, you're just standing still, and I told you. You can't stay the same. You can't stand still. You'll just shrink. Keep moving. Get active. Don't stand still. Brilliant. Don't stand still. Now, Jane, in terms of how people can get more involved and support your campaign, how and where do people go? What do they need to do? What are the details? Where can they contact you? All of that jazz. Just go to um, Jane Caro for number four reason dot com dot au, and there you can find there's um, portals where you can volunteer, you can donate, you can sign up to find out what's going on in the campaign, you can uh, send emails, you can do all of that through the website Jane Caro for number four reason dot com dot au. The last thing I'm going to ask you, and I, it would be remiss of me not to, who do you think is going to win the election, Jane? So I've given up predicting. I don't really know. I think that's the thing about this election. It's deeply unpredictable. Yeah. There's an enormous number of people who are undecided. Um, there's a big divide between different groups um, and what they think the future ought to look like. So I don't know. I will say this. I think that in every election campaign, and this is no different, we criminally underestimate women. Women are different now, post-2017, very different. Yet, and we saw 100,000 women march all around Australia only just over a year ago. Yet, what is the one group that are not being talked about? I do not understand how we can regard women's right to earn an income, their job opportunities as a niche, a kind of side issue. 51% of the population, a side issue. But coal miners, 10,000 coal miners, national emergency. They lose their jobs. Bizarre. Like what's wrong with us? I think we're not talking about women's issues at all. Women are absolutely up to here with being told, ah, you're going to be poor when you're old, lifestyle choice, your fault for having children, shouldn't have done it. What the? Um, so I think that's where my hope lies. I think women may, I can't promise anything, may surprise this coalition government and make them have to think, rethink their attitudes quite fundamentally. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. They did it for Obama. They didn't do it for Hillary, but they did it for Obama. Women still can't quite support one of their own. I wish, I hope that changes soon. I hope that changes soon. But maybe they'll do it this time. And it won't be for Albo, sadly. Not that I dislike Albo. Hmm. It'll be against Morrison. Morrison, If yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. Well, Jane Caro, thank you so much for your time. Can you just repeat where people can find out more and support your, your campaign again? Just um... Jane Caro 4, that's the number 4, reason.com.au. Absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time and um, good luck. Thank you. And thanks for asking me, James. Lovely to talk to you. I enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, James. That was really good. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you. I People w- have been trying to contact me. Sorry, I, I, went over, I went over so the I hour. Go. Sorry, I better let you go. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. All the best. See you. See you. Bye. If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word jamesbside.com. 
And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers. Cheers.